Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Thanks for listening, and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It should come as no surprise that the CEOs of Blockchain and Chain, two leading companies in the Bitcoin and blockchain industry, have both personally bought into cryptocurrencies. But just what are their investing strategies? At the Yahoo Finance All Market Summit Crypto, Blockchain's Peter Smith and Chain's Adam Ludwin share their thinking with Yahoo Finance's Dan Roberts. Okay, very delighted to have these two gentlemen here, Chain and Blockchain. These are companies I think a lot of people in the room will know. But as I said earlier today, I want to make sure that we are accommodating the layperson. So I wanted to mention, you know, if you hear Blockchain and Chain, those sound like probably very similar companies. But in fact, blockchain provides digital wallets for you to store your crypto, your cryptocurrencies. And Chain actually builds enterprise blockchains for big name clients like Visa and Citi. So actually, arguably, and we will get into this, maybe on two different sides of the equation here. But obviously, there's overlap. Uh, guys, let's start this way. I want to give you a chance to share with the audience whatever your latest news is. I know that blockchain recently had some news that I thought was pretty significant, which is soon to be adding buying and selling of Bitcoin, which really, in a way, makes you a competitor to Coinbase. Yeah, so we uh, run a platform that basically helps people use digital currencies. And a big part of that is acquiring digital currency. So we've actually run a buy-sell fiat trade desk for quite a while. We just haven't run those services in the United States. So we're in 42 countries outside of the US. Um, and right now, we're in the process of rolling out US dollar pair liquidity across the US. So does adding Bitcoin trading in the US put you in a class with a number of companies that in the past you wouldn't have necessarily thought of as your competitors? Well, for me personally, I think that I don't think of digital currency companies uh, or even companies like Chain as, as our competitors. You know, I am here and in this ecosystem to build a better financial system, um, not necessarily uh, to outcompete other startups in the same category. So I think that if you believe in the potential of the market, there's going to be a really large market in front of you. And of course, like, I'm very competitive as a human being, and a lot of people know that and you know, would, would hate to not be one of the largest companies in the space. But at the same time, I think that we all sort of have a duty to put the good of the industry first, which means that I'm more prone towards collaboration than I am prone towards uh, competition. A great example of this is when there is significant security or regulatory incidents in the industry. We don't really use those to take advantage of our competitors. We usually work with our competitors to help minimize risk to the industry. And of course, I want to make sure I mention when we talk about blockchain, I think for a lot of people in the room, they might just know blockchain from having used the Blockchain Explorer, which mm -hmm. you guys offer. I mean, that's, I'm sure the traffic to that is big every day. So. Yeah, it's huge. Um, millions of people use that product every day. Uh, millions of people also use our retail wallet product every day. Um, and we do a little more volume now than PayPal on out of our consumer product. Uh, so it's really quite massive, and, and that's without trading volume, actually. That's just peer-to-peer -peer payment volume. Um, you know, I think that we have three or four products, the digital wallet being the most famous, our data and analytics probably being the second. We also run some products that are more aimed at sort of trading and in, in, in the institutional side. Um, but we don't market those heavily because they're not, they're not consumer products. Adam, for you guys, when we talk about big news with Chain, it's usually signing a big new partner that in our world at Yahoo Finance is often a very well-known publicly traded company. Tell us what's new at Chain. Sure. So uh, for those that don't know, Chain is a 
uh, enterprise-focused blockchain company, which basically means if you look at the total market cap of all crypto assets, uh, it approached a trillion dollars recently. It's now uh, you know, probably a little under half a, half a trillion. If you look at the total market cap of all assets in the world, you know, it's literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trillions. And our thesis is that all assets eventually become tokenized. And the first step toward you know, achieving that vision is to solve the last mile, to basically build uh, blockchain architectures within organizations so that the assets that flow inside their walls and across to their counterparties can happen on a much more frictionless basis than occurs today. And then over time, connect those assets into public blockchain networks as those public blockchain networks get to scale. So most people, when they hear about Chain, they hear about us because we've done a partnership with someone like Citi or NASDAQ or Visa, building out those initial kind of last mile networks, sometimes referred to as private blockchains. I think it's cleanest to think of them really as just new databases for money that are more secure, more efficient, and will be interoperable uh, with public networks. And I think, uh, to your point, Peter, I think there's going to be more of a convergence of uh, what's happening in the enterprise and what's happening on the open internet to sort of create this future of value over IP. Uh, that's the future we're headed into, and we've got to approach it from a lot of different angles to get there. I'm glad you talk about the convergence. I want to get into that, but just first, we hear a lot about companies, you mentioned NASDAQ, Visa, doing partnerships with you. We hear a lot about these blockchain partnerships. I know that I get pitched on them. I, almost every week there's a new press release and they say, oh, we have a new blockchain partnership. Yeah. But I think a lot of people wonder, what does that really look like? I mean, it's easy for a big company to say, oh, look, we've dipped a toe into blockchain. We're doing a, a pilot program. So I guess I'd ask how many companies, or maybe you could name a few, are using right now you know, a product that Chain built for them, a blockchain yep. from Chain? So Visa, NASDAQ, and Citi all run our core software in production for real use cases. The vast majority of the time you see a headline about a financial institution doing something with blockchain, their goal is mostly just to get that headline, mostly just to say, we're doing something with blockchain. Um, most and then the stock, whoop. Sometimes. I think <laughs> the awful. market sort of priced in the ex expectation that everyone on Wall Street is going to do something with blockchain. For the last couple of years, when a financial executive or their team would come to our office, uh, the, usually the first thing out of their mouth was, hey, we're here because we want to do something with blockchain. And we would say, okay, cool, what problem are you trying to solve? And they would have this befuddled look, <laughs> right. like I asked them a trick question. Uh, because for them, it was simply the act of learning and exploring that was their goal. And that's not wrong. That's actually a good first step. As an entrepreneur, as a startup building a software business, that can't be our goal. Otherwise, we're a consulting business. So for us, it's actually been difficult, but we've managed to sort of find those who have serious problems that we can solve with them today uh, and try to distance, not distance ourselves in a negative way, but sort of steer clear so we don't spin our cycles if there's not real intent uh, uh, to sort of transform the guts of the, of the enterprise. You used a term there, you said some people would call this private blockchains. So this allows me to get into one of my favorite topics. This has been the case for a couple of years now, but I think that in December when the price of different coins went through the roof, it became more of a talking point and suddenly the, the media shifted back to cryptocurrencies. Oh look, cryptocurrencies. Whereas for much of 2017, I think it was all about blockchain. Uh, I referred to it as blockchain 16. hype in a lot of 16. stories. Yeah, 2016 yeah. into 2017, yeah. yeah. 
And so I think there's an interesting push and pull where you have a lot of financial institutions that they love blockchain. Bitcoin, eh, maybe not so much. We could talk about Jamie Dimon and his many quotes, although recently he pulled back and said he regretted calling Bitcoin a, a fraud or a scam. And allow me to sort of paint you guys as, you know, Peter, arguably being with blockchain, you guys are sort of a crypto company. I mean, you know, you provide wallets, provide cryptocurrencies, buying and selling, and you guys are on the blockchain side. Now, of course, those aren't diametrically opposed. But uh, what is your take on sort of the, the concept of blockchain without Bitcoin, blockchains without cryptocurrencies? So I'll give you my two cents, then I'd love to hear yours. Um, I think the dichotomy between public and private is a false one, and it's, it's actually not helpful really to think about the problem space. Instead, I would separate out uh, whether we're talking about a new asset, Bitcoin, Ether, Lumens, uh, Zcash, where you have a whole new asset class, the creation of which and the purpose of which is native to some public network. You know, they're enabling censorship-resistant public networks. That's what they're for. If you believe in those networks long-term, you invest in them. If you need to use those networks, you buy them and use them on the networks. Uh, our goal and intent is asking, how can we take a share of Apple stock? Uh, how can we take a Starbucks you know, loyalty program? How can we take a, uh, a dollar that needs to move from a company in California to a company in Thailand? And how can we make those assets uh, 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 operate in such a way that there's more integrity, there's more visibility, um, there's high scale, and you have just different technical architectures that you have to approach that. Now, I think over time, like I said, I think you're gonna see a convergence just like you have a company here at Yahoo, you have a local area network, it's private. It also connects into the public internet. There are files here that sit behind a wall and then sometimes those files go flying out over to some other organization. Different architectures, different software companies that are gonna be focused there over time convergence. That's the way to think about it. It's not a contest between one is better than the other. It's what problem are you trying to solve and what vision do you have long term for uh, the asset, you know, think of the asset first, not the architecture first. Yeah, so I think that, you know, in one way, both of our companies are centered around the idea of using a set of technology to deliver services. And those are, you know, broadly speaking, sort of these decentralized ledgers or blockchains or whatever you want to call them. We just, as Adam notes, deliver them in a sort of different structure, a different way. I think, though, that, and I agree with Adam that eventually there's going to be a big convergence. And actually, one of the things that I'm really excited about is people like Adam working to solve those problems of bringing the sort of legacy financial system digital. Because one of our biggest challenges as a business is anytime we interact with those non-native assets, right? So. You know, Citibank moving to Adam's platform would be incredibly helpful for me uh, as a Citibank client hmm. on the corporate side. Now, at the same time, you know, for us, three and a half years ago, we did some of these projects with uh, the banks, which is something we haven't really discussed publicly all that often. And at the end of them, we kind of came away with this real firm conviction that innovation within that space was going to be very slow. And at the same time, innovation within the public space is going to be very fast. And so I think, you know, for me, um, you know, we have limited resources and at the time had a really successful consumer platform um, that was doing quite well. And so we chose to focus on the public uh, blockchains really because we took a view that innovation would be much faster there and growth Has would be much faster. Case? That's absolutely been the case. If you look at, you know, economic value, 
you know, either customers, you look at transaction volumes, you look at revenue, like any metric for measuring business activity, the public side, or even measuring innovation, the public side has been far, far faster than the private side to date. Now, to be fair to the private side, there could be this like magical tippening point where you bring enough systems online, things suddenly move very fast, and because the legacy system is so gigantic, you know, it is able to catch up and maybe even get further uh, than you know, the radical stuff that everybody else is doing in the public domain. Do you, do you find, Adam, that it is often tough to work with the banks and financial institutions, that so they do move slowly? 100% agree. Yeah, it's, uh, we, we've come to the same conclusion about pace of innovation and path of innovation. I think where companies that operate in the enterprise get stuck is when they depend on the financial institutions to be the ones leading the innovation. I think the trick is to bring them along as participants. We haven't fully solved how to do that, but we have some ideas, right? But I think, it, that, and that's where they want to be. They don't want to be taking the risk on market or product risk. They want to be guided along toward a vision. I think the challenge around pace of innovation in public is that, yes, tons of technology innovation, tons of activity, tons of growth in terms of usage and, and, and users, uh, but it still hasn't, the public side also hasn't really converted to real utility yet. Uh, not, and I'm not claiming the private has either. Let me survey the audience real quick. In, it's 2018. In, in 1998, uh, so what is that, 20 years ago? In 1998, how many of you had heard of the internet? Wow, there are people who, are, who had not heard of the internet in 1998. How did they get in here? Uh, okay. They're probably just younger. Right. Uh, how many of you in 1998 had, uh, in, were investing in like internet stocks, were buying internet stocks? Okay, so about a third. Uh-oh. And how ma- last question, how many of you were, were regularly using internet services in your business or your personal life? You were sort of depending on them in a meaningful way. Okay, great, so about the same number of people that said they had heard of it. All right, now let's switch gears. It's 2018, how many of you have heard of Bitcoin? Uh, if, if you're here today. That was a gimme. All right. How many of you have purchased a cryptocurrency of any kind, bought an exchange? Is that great? How see, many that's of, already more hands than I right? expected. And, and how many of you depend every day for your business or your personal life on these new cryptocurrency rails for payments, for computing, for file storage, for identity, the things that are sort of being talked about up here today? So Look zero. At so, Look at that. So the second question... In other words, how many are investing? That's where all the activity is. The third question, which is like, what is it all for and amounting to? Still an open question. Still, we haven't seen any actual progress. And that's very different from you know, the dot-com era, which gets compared to this era all the time. And so and, I and think- And this is where, like, I'm just gonna jump in on you. Go ahead. The, yeah. This is where, like, I think, um, coming from, like, background in, like, economics and historical economics, Everybody constantly tries to assign, to model out a current phenomena to a past phenomena. And it's really dangerous to do. And like I've seen these you know, survey questions done a lot over the last four years. Right, the comparison the, is the internet. Correct, the comparison is the internet. Like, I actually think it's a better comparison is to take it back to the free banking period in the 1890s and 1920s, um, which you know, none of you are alive for, so I can't do a sweet survey poll. But um, the, the sort of point here to make, though, is that you know, when the internet stock bubble happened, most of the very early stage speculation was done by venture capitalists, right? 
which is done by institutional capital. In the digital currency space, almost all of the initial capital has been provided by retail. And on, I think that's really interesting for two reasons. The first is that it's really probably the first thing in tech that's happened where venture capitalists missed out on the majority of the value creation to date so far. Except Barry Silver. Barry's not a venture capitalist. The second thing is that, and he wouldn't say he's a venture capitalist, he'd say he's an entrepreneur. Barry? Barry. <laughs> and then the second he just out of again. And then the second thing is that it means the market has a very different dynamic because in 1998, 96, 97, it was actually pretty hard for the average consumer to be buying a lot of electronic stock trivially, to be buying a lot of internet stock trivially. Like you didn't, this is before mass stock trading platforms. This is before you could have a consumer account on E-Trade. This is before almost all of the things we take for granted today. Digital currency is the direct opposite. We didn't go out and say like, institutions please invest in digital currency. We went out and made it really easy for like 19 year old kids to buy digital currency. And so that's why the market is so different. I think that you're right, we have to see more people use this for utility cases. That said, this room is literally going to be the last place that needs public blockchains for utility use cases. Because most utility use cases that we see on our platform today, and about 40% of our users in, in volume is utility use cases, are people who can't even get into this country, much less into this conference, yeah. right? So, I like, and this is one where I'm always gonna come back really strongly on as we've all seen me do now, but like there are a lot of people around the world that use digital currencies for utility use case. Now if we wanna continue that, if we wanna make more people use this stuff for utility, it needs to have more utility. The fastest way for us to deliver that would be to issue assets that are a little less volatile. And so one of the things that I think will happen this year that I'm really excited about is the issuance of stabilized digital assets. Um, and there's a ton of approaches to that and a ton of projects and, and we're as a company investing in a lot of them, developing some of them, et cetera. But I do kind of think that it's a totally different market and that a poll like that won't capture any of the present utility. I want to mention just briefly, um, Peter's talking about you know, use cases outside of this country. You guys will hear later from BitPesa, which is a company in Africa that I think is really a good example of putting to use one of the initial appeals of Bitcoin and purposes that has really gotten lost a little bit. Uh, now, Adam, when you pull the group and you see that no one in this room needs to rely on, on these technologies yet, mm -hmm. is that encouraging to you, that's okay, we have a long runway, the future is bright, we have a little time, or is it a little fine. disappointing, alarming? No, I, I, I think it's fine. I think, building on what Peter said, the utility of a public blockchain architecture uh, comes down to, in the case of Bitcoin, you know, for whom is Bitcoin really the only way to make a payment? They don't have access to traditional financial services or they're trying to make a payment that they don't want censored. And that might make you think about criminal activity. It doesn't have to. It can be a country or a context where if you donate to the wrong nonprofit, you go to jail. So there are a lot of cases where I think this entire blockchain crypto asset ecosystem is enabling civil society to have transactional rails, commerce rails, value exchange outside the traditional system in an alternative sense, and that's a good thing net for society. I think long term, I'm also bullish that that will translate more and more into the mainstream and audiences like this, but I think it's important to recognize that everyone in here who said they invested, what they're investing in today is two things. One, the networks that are functioning uh, for folks off the grid or who want to be off the grid, and I think that's a good thing. And second, in the potential that, these networks over time, the cohorts of people using them grows, 
And I, I think there is a precedent for that. I, I, uh, I think if you look at encrypted messaging, encrypted communication, that was used by 10 years ago, the only people sending encrypted email were hackers, paranoids, and spies. Uh, and if we were up here talking about encrypted messaging as the future, people would be like, I don't, no one uses it, right? <laughs> so now today, post Edward Snowden, post WikiLeaks, post Donald Trump, Telegram, Signal, end-to-end -end encrypted WhatsApp, those are mainstream phenomena. And it's not that the technology radically changed, it's that society changed, and so it's hard to predict how society might change to further the adoption or even stall some of these some of these currencies, it's just hard to predict. So I, I think it's good to be, you know, eyes wide open about what the reality is, humble about the future, but trying to build towards solving increasingly large problems. Um, and I, I would also agree with Peter that I think some version of stable coins, but probably more simply, uh, you know, just issuing traditional currencies onto crypto rails is, is gonna be a big part of the future of the financial, financial space. And I think, again, that's where the convergence, in my mind, is gonna happen. I think one of the other really interesting things about you know, crypto assets broadly is that, yes, they are about permissionlessness, censorship resistance, and all that. They're also about financial networks that are stateless. And today, if you look at economic and political history, we've never been at a point in time where more of the world is controlled by fewer entities, right? So we're at a all-time high for centralization of political and economic power. And what we know from history is that these things ebb and flow, right? And one of the most powerful things about digital currencies is that it's the chance to be part of a network, to be part of an economic system that isn't linked to a specific country or state. And I think that's a really powerful idea that just as like we've seen society change around encrypted messaging, we may very well see society change around belonging to one specific economic and political system. And that could also drive public cryptocurrencies. Um, that said, like, this is still a really, really early market. You know, you look at like, re like market cap, revenue, like users, any real metric for digital assets, like the whole category, we're like one or 2% of financial services globally. So, you know, we're very, like, very, very nascent. Um, but the hype, thanks to people like you, is, is probably at, you know, there's never been more hype about a, a technology project or industry than, than in ours. And I think well, that's hype, positive. Hype implies it's, uh, it's misleading, right? And that it's well, part, part of that is but Well, yeah. yeah. Part, part of that is because it's money. It's good to never lose sight of that. Uh, this is a very, very early nascent technology. Normally, emerging technologies out of the lab don't get this much attention because there's no way to profit off them. Right. Uh, here, because the thing itself is money, you have a capital markets phenomenon overlaid against a very early stage technology that's usually, this is the most fragile you know, phase of any technology. So time will tell whether this intense capital markets thing around it stunts the growth or accelerates the growth or stunts and accelerates back and forth, which has sort of been the course so far. Um, and it's, it's definitely been a double-edged double double right. sword yeah. so far. And I mean, you know, to, to, to Adam's point, like, you know, encrypted messaging in some ways is the biggest technological and social shift of the last, you know, maybe five to 10 years. I have yet to see a, a theme of conferences around encrypted chat apps. Can't make money. Can't make any money. Everyone here <laughs> is here because you can make money. This conference right. is, exists 
I shouldn't break the fourth wall or whatever, but whatever. Uh, this conference, these cameras, yeah, us conference? on stage, the makeup backstage, I'm wearing makeup. Uh, <laughs> because there's money to be made, right. and there's fortunes to be made, and there's money to be lost. And if it wasn't for that, and, and that, that, that does skew the dialogue significantly, and it's helpful just to, I think, acknowledge so that we can kind of focus on what we're trying to build long term. Well, let's talk about that for, for a moment a little further. I mean, does it scare either of you the extent to which call them regular people who don't necessarily go out and educate themselves on this space, are buying up these assets because they just want to get in and, and in some cases get out, although now, huh, you know, but um, they just want to make quick money. And then we have someone like you and, and Shane and you're working with banks and, you know, you're sort of over here and you're, and you're watching this and so I guess I'm, I guess I'm asking your kind of view on the, the crypto investing boom. I mean, have you, have you bought coins yourself? I, 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 uh, you're never supposed to talk about your crypto. Uh, <laughs> I, I am long-term, incredibly bullish. I think it's foolish not to have an allocation toward crypto in your portfolio. I think you should have some reasonable, probably single-digit number. I think you should rebalance it because it's probably going to keep becoming a, a double-digit number every quarter if you're not careful. And I think over the long term, if you look, look we have like an eight-year history of these things being online and really a three-year history. But if you look at Bitcoin itself, every few years, it increases in value by an order of magnitude. Will that continue forever? No one knows. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think if you're discerning and you do your homework, it's, it's, a, it's an asset class worth owning and having in sort of a risk-adjusted portfolio, especially if you have a long horizon. Um, and, and so I think you can believe that and also try to be discerning about a lot of the BS, and those aren't those shouldn't be, you know, inconsistent. Yeah, and to be fair for us, because this is something that affects us in a huge way, um, with you know, 23 million people, and is that how many people have a blockchain yeah. wallet? 30 million. 23 million. Okay. Yeah. So the challenge for us is like balancing giving consumers what they want versus behaving in a responsible way, and what we do is we have relatively low limits on our retail platform. So it would be hard for people to take huge positions. Mm. We also don't support credit cards because I believe that it's Good. wrong to do that. And the banks have rolled back <laughs> people being able to do it. But most, almost every one of our competitors has allowed digital currency purchases on high APR credit cards for years. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. Yep. Yep. Now, people betting the farm. Correct. Now the other thing that we do is we only add what we've considered to be high quality digital assets to our platform, which means that um, we're very selective on the retail side, uh, and I think that's important. Now, for what Adam said, I think that's totally true. Everyone should have some meaningful yet small allocation. And people often ask me like, what I do, and I'm very public about it. I've bought digital currency every month for the last, you know, at least five years. But with you're not the supposed exception, to talk about your crypto. With the except, I've also sold some, <laughs> with the exception of three months where I just forgot to buy it. Um, you know, sometimes you, you forget and you miss the Google Calendar reminder. But I think it's hard. You can't time the market here. Like, you should buy crypto in amounts that you're not worried about, and you should sell it whenever you start thinking about it once a day. And if you live by those rules, that's a good, that's a, you will do advice. well if the yeah. asset class does yeah. well, and you will live a relatively stressless life. Oh, what happened to just total? I don't believe in that. I think that's irresponsible financial management theory. Uh, we have under a minute, but very briefly, uh, both of you, you went to Davos two years ago, you went to Davos last year, the World Economic Forum. 
And it was interesting to see, you know, now two years in a row, blockchain was the buzzy word. Just very briefly, can we hear about those experiences? I mean, a lot of it is you have to educate the people there. Yeah, so the, the form kind of got it in reverse. They sent the digital currency guy there the year that everybody wanted to talk about DLT. <laughs> and they sent the DLT guy there the year that they wanted to talk about digital currency. So what I, what I did last year was do a, I did a briefing for like 34 central bank governors and was trying to convince them to issue digital currencies. And I think that we've made a lot of progress there and we'll see that start to happen in the next year, which will be really exciting for our platform, but really exciting for the whole industry. It is like one of these topics no one understands and everyone thinks they're a master of. So going to these type of events is hilarious. And then Davos is both a really special place and a really special place for meeting people and sharing ideas and amazing you know, sort of academics and intellectuals there. It's also like a reminder that the world is incredibly centralized into you know, 1,000 or 2,000 people. And one of the things that I'm interested in is making the world a fairer, more transparent place. And so it was a really, really great reminder. I don't know, what did you think of it? Yeah, the, the Davos consensus this year was still blockchain good, Bitcoin bad which is wrong, just for the record. Uh, different, and, and that's, that's a, that, that, that was the consensus. Uh, you gotta change that. And, and the, other, the other consensus was, when you talk to a bank executive, you say, what's going well in your business? They say, deregulation is great. You say, great, what do you think of crypto? They say, gotta regulate it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it's a great place to stop. Really appreciate Peter and Adam. Let's give them a hand. Thanks for listening to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Be sure to rate, review, and share this podcast. And remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode.